Thanks for downloading or purchasing this sermon from Christchurch Forward. To find out more, visit forwardchurch.co.uk or join us on Sundays. Joseph, a young man of 17, was tending the flocks with his brothers, the sons of Bilah and the sons of Zilpah, his father's wives. And he brought their father a bad report about them. Now Israel loved Joseph more than any of his other sons, because he had been born to him in his old age, and he made a richly ornamented robe for him. When his brothers saw that their father loved him more than any of them, they hated him and could not speak a kind word to him. Joseph had a dream And when he told it to his brothers, they hated him all the more. He said to them, Listen to this dream I had. We were binding sheaves of corn out in the field, when suddenly my sheaf rose and stood upright, while your sheaves gathered around mine and bowed down to it. His brothers said to him, Do you intend to reign over us? Will you actually rule us? And they hated him all the more because of his dream and what he had said. Then he had another dream, and he told it to his brothers. Listen, he said, I had another dream, and this time the sun and moon and eleven stars were bowing down to me. When he told his father as well as his brothers, his father rebuked him and said, What is this dream you had? Will your mother and I and your brothers actually come and bow down to the ground before you? His brothers were jealous of him, but his father kept the matter in mind. Now his brothers had gone to graze their father's flocks near Shechem, and Israel said to Joseph, As you know, your brothers are grazing the flocks near Shechem. Come, I'm going to send you to them. Very well, he replied. So he said to him, Go and see if all is well with your brothers and with the flocks, and bring word back to me. So he sent him off from the valley of Hebron. When Joseph arrived at Shechem, a man found him wandering around in the fields and asked him, What are you looking for? He replied, I'm looking for my brothers. Can you tell me where they are grazing their flocks? They've moved on from here, the man answered. I heard them say, Let's go to Dothan. So Joseph went after his brothers and found them near Dothan. But they saw him in the distance, and before he reached them, they plotted to kill him. Here comes that dreamer, they said to each other. Come now, let's kill him and throw him into one of the cisterns and say that a ferocious animal devoured him. Then we'll see what comes of his dreams. When Reuben heard this, he tried to rescue him from their hands, 
Let's not take his life, he said. Don't shed any blood. Throw him into this cistern here in the desert, but don't lay a hand on him. Reuben said this to rescue him from them and take him back to his father. So when Joseph came to his brothers, they stripped him of his robe, the richly ornamented robe he was wearing, and they took him and threw him into the cistern. Now the cistern was empty. There was no water in it. As they sat down to eat their meal, they looked up and saw a caravan of Ishmaelites coming from Gilead. Their camels were loaded with spices, balm and myrrh, and they were on their way to take them down to Egypt. Judah said to his brothers, What will we gain if we kill our brother and cover up his blood? Come, let's sell him to the Ishmaelites and not lay our hands on him. After all, he is our brother, our own flesh and blood. His brothers agreed. So when the Midianite merchants came by, his brothers pulled Joseph up out of the cistern and sold him for 20 shekels of silver to the Ishmaelites who took him to Egypt. When Reuben returned to the cistern and saw that Joseph was not there, he tore his clothes. He went back to his brothers and said, The boy isn't there. Where can I turn now? Then they got Joseph's robe, slaughtered a goat, and dipped the robe in the blood. They took the ornamented robe back to their father and said, We found this. Examine it to see whether it is your son's robe. He recognized it and said, It is my son's robe. Some ferocious animal has devoured him. Joseph has surely been torn to pieces. Then Jacob tore his clothes, put on sackcloth, and mourned for his son many days. All his sons and daughters came to comfort him, but he refused to be comforted. No, he said, in mourning will I go down to the grave to my son. So his father wept for him. Meanwhile, the Midianites sold Joseph in Egypt to Potiphar, one of Pharaoh's officials, the captain of the guard. Gwyneth, thank you very much for reading for us, and it's very good to have you here this morning. It's also very good to have God's word in front of us this morning. On the way in, I hope you received a handout. You might find it helpful to have that to hand over the next few minutes. It'll give us a good guide to where we're going as we look at this amazing story of Joseph and his coat. Let's pray as we look back again at God's word. Father, we thank you that your word shows us what you are like and also what we are like. And in a world full of confusion, please would your word reveal once again your character and our hearts that we might be a people who cling to you and trust in you alone. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, as Tim said, over the summer we're looking at a number of 
um, famous stories from the Bible, real Sunday school classics, and well, this Sunday we're looking at Joseph and his coat. The, the favorite son, a dreamer, who was hard done by his brothers, sold a slave into Egypt, and became prime minister of the biggest country in the world, and rescued a nation when a famine came. It's a great story of a family being put back together again. And you can see why it's become a classic. It's, it's famous everywhere, and it's been given the Hollywood treatment. My guess is many of you have come across the Andrew Lloyd Webber musical adaptation. And uh, you'll see on the handout that the, um, the prologue to that musical begins with these words. We all dream a lot. Some are lucky, some are not. But if you think it, want it, dream it, then it's real. You are what you feel. That's the musical's summary of the story of Joseph. And um, it does resonate an awful lot with how the world thinks life is all about. Uh, We should be like Joseph. Each one of us should develop our own personal private dream. And no matter whether or not the dream is any good, if we love it and feel it, if it's real for us, then it's all that matters. Pursue your dream, make it, make it what you will, and then life is successful, whatever happens. So uh, with that line of thought, we are encouraged to pursue our dreams. Maybe it's the dream spouse, the dream job, the dream home. I remember a student friend of mine, Dave, when I was studying at university. Dave's dream in the first year was to graduate with a good degree to get a good job in London so that he could earn lots of money. And then by the age of 40, the dream was to retire and to live on a yacht in the Caribbean. It's, a, it's, it's an appealing message, isn't it? Find your own dream, live your life for it, and it'll come true if you work hard enough. This morning we're going to see that the, the true message of Joseph from the Bible is exactly the opposite. Straight away, the whole story uh, is not actually about... <laughs> Joseph at all. Look at verse 2 and see how it begins. Uh, Over the page back, verse 2, the writer begins, this is the account of, not Joseph, but it's Jacob. It's a chapter heading. This story that dominates the final third of the book of Genesis is actually all about Jacob. Of course, Joseph is a key player, but it's really about Jacob. And this is so important because Jacob is the grandson of, of Abraham. And uh, last week we heard about uh, Abraham. We saw that God had made these wonderful promises to Abraham back in Genesis 12. Uh, the promise of land and descendants and blessings. Promises that ultimately point us forward to the great gospel blessings that come to us in Christ. But now as we arrive at this point in Genesis chapter 37, the big question hanging over this whole section is will the great promises given to Abraham come to pass through his grandson Jacob. It's one thing for God to announce his plan for the world, but will God actually keep his word and bring about these promises? Is it worth trusting God at all? You see, God's character, his faithfulness, his power is at stake as we watch this particular family And of course, wonderfully, we'll see this morning that the answer is yes, God does keep his promises. And so I want us to see this morning that the real purpose of the story of Joseph is to give us 
confidence in God's faithfulness to keep his promises, but also confidence in how, uh, God's methods and how he keeps his promises. And it's going to help us to understand as we think forward to the new creation, as we seek to cling on to God, uh, what it will look and feel like to be a people of faith, trusting in the promise-keeping God. You see, contrary to the musical, our lives are not about finding our own personal dream and relying on ourselves to achieve it. Our lives are all about trusting in God's plan and his purposes. Which is great news this morning because God has got a much better plan than we do for our lives and God is much more able to bring about his good plans than we are ever able to. My friend Dave who dreamed of sailing in the Caribbean, well, he failed his first year exams, he left university, and as far as I know, he never got that dream job. And my friend Dave's experience will be all of our experiences, ultimately, if we put our trust in our own personal dreams and our ability to achieve them. And so whether or not we are brand new to Christian things, maybe we've been a Christian many years this morning, let's come back to look at Joseph and to see how and why we should have confidence in God, the promise-keeping Lord, as he works out his promises in the world. Well, if we're going to understand the story, the first thing I want us to see is there on the handout, as we look at this family, the destructive power of sin. Many years ago, I decided to make a rhubarb crumble and um, I was feeling quite impatient, so I used one of those pressure cookers where you speed up the cooking process. I put all the, the rhubarb into the pan, I screwed the lid on tight, and I gave it uh, 10 minutes on high heat. But then after 10 minutes, I couldn't tell what was happening inside this pressurized vessel. What do you do to see if it's done? And so I took the little valve off the top of the... Um... Yeah, you know what happens, don't you? You've done this. I discovered what was happening inside the, uh, the, the pressurized container because a, a volcano of superheated rhubarb goo flew up into the ceiling and covered it in a, in a kind of mess. And um, Jacob's family is a bit like that pressure cooker. It is a family under great pressure and it is about to explode. And it happens before our very eyes this morning. We already know that it is a five-parent family. Uh, one dad, four mums, which is never a recipe for an easy family life at home. Um, of course, the Bible never condones polygamy. Um, in fact, we see here how destructive it is. But that's the context for this family. And in that context, see what Jacob, the dad, does. He has 12 sons, but look at verse 3. Now, Israel, that is Jacob, loved Joseph more than any of his other sons because he had been born to him in his old age, and he made him a richly ornamented robe. When a parent publicly picks out one particular child from the family as their favorite, it's, it's never a good thing. And within the context of this particular family, it is dynamite. Verse 4, when his brothers saw that their father loved him more than any of, the, any of them, they hated him and could not speak a kind word to him. Straight away we're seeing Jacob as the dad. His favoritism is destroying this family. What about the sons? Twice we're told the brothers hated Joseph. Verse 11, they are jealous when they hear of his dream about how one day they will bow down and worship him. And then later on, verse 19, they consider murdering him. 
I know that uh, a lot of uh, times siblings go through the kind of fighting stage growing up, but to murder their brother, this is surely an extreme family falling apart before our eyes. Well, they do relent for murder, verse 27, but partially it seems only because they realize they can make more money out of selling Joseph into slavery than just killing him there in the pit in front of him. And the final scene is possibly the most upsetting of all. Verse 34, uh, Jacob has brought the cloak uh, covered in blood and he tears his own clothes in mourning. He is utterly devastated by his lost son and seemingly unaware that he still has 11 healthy sons around him. And at the same time, his 11 remaining sons gather around to comfort their grieving father, knowing that secretly it was their very actions which have caused his grief. It is so messed up this family. And of course, as they're weeping and crying over here, every second goes by, Joseph is walking further and further away into slavery in Egypt. We are seeing a family tearing itself apart and the reason is because of the destructive power of sin. This family is not a victim of circumstances or bad luck. The problem here is sin destroying this family. And this matters so much because remember, this family is no ordinary family. This is the family through whom God has promised to bring his blessings to the world. If this family blows itself apart, the promises are gone. Before we move on, we need to understand these dreams. You can imagine the family sitting down one morning over cornflakes and little Joseph pipes up, verse six, Listen to this dream I had. We were binding sheaves of grain out in the field when suddenly my sheaf rose and stood upright while your sheaves gathered around mine and bowed down to it. I know that in the morning your brain doesn't work very well. You're kind of sleepy with, um, in a stupor with sleep. But but even still, it's not hard to work out what the dream means. The youngest, Joseph, will be exalted to the highest place and the other brothers will bow down before him. That's the point of the dream. And uh, they are outraged by what he says. And in case they've missed it, the same pattern happens again. A different dream, but the same point. And this time, even the dad, verse 10, is, he rebukes Joseph. How can this be? And then notice what finally triggers the brothers' desperate plan to kill Joseph. Verse 19. Here comes that dreamer. They said to each other, come now, let's kill him and throw him into one of these cisterns and say that a a ferocious animal devoured him. Then we will see what comes of his dreams. At the heart of this dysfunctional family is an unwillingness to accept that these dreams will come to pass. They are actually willing to kill the dreamer to stop the dream. And this matters because again and again through Genesis, when someone receives a dream, this is how God speaks to his people. It's not the, uh, the normative pattern throughout the Bible, uh, particularly here in Genesis. And uh, for us here today, now that we have the Bible, I don't think we are promised that God will speak to us that way. But in Genesis, when someone gets a dream from God, it's a, it's a big headline saying God is speaking to this person. And twice, Joseph gets a dream from God. This is God's plan for the family. It will happen, and it does but the, the brothers and the dad, they hate the dream. They push against it. 
and they try to kill the dreamer. And so the brother's opposition to the dreams is actually in opposition to God's word and God's plan for this family. Here is the destructive power of sin, tearing this family apart. God's promises to Abraham hang by a thread. So how should we apply this, uh, just to, to pause at the moment, how should we apply uh, this first point to our lives? Uh, I don't think this chapter is primarily here to give us a manual on how to be a bad father or to be a better sibling to our brothers, although tempting as it would be to apply it in that direction. Instead, I think over the page on the handout, you'll see um, uh, that I think the first thing we should learn from this is that the human heart is always rebellious. Two weeks ago, if you're with us, we looked at the story of Noah, and uh, we saw that every inclination of the human heart was only evil all the time. That's why the flood came. But here, many years later, after the flood, we see the same human condition persists in the world. We see a family full of evil intentions in their hearts. And just as Jacob deceived his dad, Isaac, with a garment, so Jacob's sons deceive him with a garment. You see, sin has a habit of cascading down through the generations. It's everywhere in the human heart. And as it was then, so it is now in our world today. We look around at families and hearts and patterns and motives and we see the same kind of favoritism and jealousy and hatred and family frictions and rejection of God's word at work in the world today and dare I say it in a home not far from ours and in a heart not far from ours this is the world we live in And just as this family needed to be rescued, so we need to be rescued from the devastating, destructive power of sin. You can see how at odds the story of of Joseph, according to the musical, is. You know, trust your feelings, go for your own dreams. But when we understand the human heart, we would want to be very far from trusting our hearts and our dreams. Second, we see God's word is always opposed. It happened back in the garden in Genesis 3, and it happens again here in Genesis 37 and the dreams of Joseph. Again and again, the people of this world do not want to submit to God's word and God's ways in the world. More precisely, I guess we could say that God's chosen man is always rejected. Joseph is God's chosen man. We know that from the dreams, and he will be the one through whom God rescues this family and the world. He is the one in this story, and yet he is the one who receives the strongest opposition from the family. That is, again and again, the pattern in the Bible that God picks out a man to rescue the world, and he's opposed by the very people he is sent to rescue. And of course, it points us forward to the Lord Jesus, who is God's true man, And when he came into the world, he was opposed by those that he was sent to save. They killed him. And yet, um, wonderfully, he was able to bring a great rescue to the world. But I think spotting this pattern that happens again and again in the Bible, that the world opposes God's chosen man, helps us today. When we talk about Jesus uh, with our friends and our workplaces, and, and people mock us for being willing to submit to King Jesus. 
or when they themselves have little time for listening to the, to the, the gospel of Christ. It's nothing new. The world has always been a world that opposes God's chosen man. It helps keep us going because we're in good company. But finally, under this first point, this family shows us that the sinful heart is always redeemable. There is hope for murderers and slave traders and for liars and for those who struggle with anger and jealousy. Because unbelievably, by the end of the story, and we haven't got time to look at it in detail today, this dysfunctional family will be brought together again. They will be saved graciously and brought back into being part of God's plans for the world. As John Newton, the ex-slave trader, so wonderfully put it, amazing grace, how sweet the sound that saved a wretch like me. When we realize that God is able to use this kind of family to achieve his purposes for the world, and when he's able to, to rescue this kind of family, then it helps us to realize that there's no one here this morning who can say that we are beyond the reach of God's grace There is no human heart too hard or too far gone for God not to bring back graciously to rescue. Maybe some of us here this morning uh, find our minds flying back to something we've done in the past, a a sin, a mistake we've made, and we think that that mistake, that pattern, it pushes me beyond God's rescue plan for the world. I'm too far gone. Maybe a friend of ours, we think, how could they ever bow the knee to King Jesus? They're so hard-hearted. The story encourages us that no one is beyond being redeemed. There's our first point, the destructive power of sin at work in this family. But next, the unstoppable plans of God. God's name is mentioned over 400 times in the book of Genesis, but not once in this chapter. If you read through it, there's no direct reference to God at all. There's no clear sign that he's at all involved in these horrendous events. And it can feel as if he is utterly absent. Imagine being Joseph. Just put yourself into his shoes for a moment. Uh, You've been given these dreams from God about how you'll be exalted and your brothers will bow down and worship you. But then, as events unfold, you find yourself stripped naked and um, plunged into a pit facing your own death and in that moment you're bound to wonder where is God? It's not an academic question. This week I read about a man named Neil who aged 16 one day was out was helping his family move their family's sailing boats down to the harbor to launch it into the water. And as they pushed the sailing boat along, a freak accident occurred. The mast struck an overhead power line. Neil's hand was on the boat. He was electrocuted. He almost died. He was in hospital, gravely ill. And as he recovered, they realized that they couldn't save his left arm. It was amputated, age 16. Neil was a Christian, um, but he was in agony over what God had allowed to happen. And uh, he was uh, an athletic young man. He had lots of athletic potential. That all changed in a second. No arm, he couldn't do anything he used to be able to do. 
You can imagine him saying, where was God when that accident happened? It's not an academic question. And there'll be some here today who are asking that question. And it, it, you really feel it because you're going through a series of events where you're so hurting, so perplexed that God does really feel absolutely absent. We've cried, we've prayed, we've tried to stand on the promises of God, and yet nothing's happened. But in Genesis 37, God is not absent. And I say that because if we had time to read through the rest of the story, we would realize that every step along the way, every link in the chain is all part of his plan to achieve his wonderful promises for this family and for the world. Just think about each link. Joseph just happens to send, uh, sorry, Jacob just happened to send Joseph on a trip to find the brothers. The brothers just happened to move from Shechem onto Dothan, which is a, a remote place where no one can see what they're doing. Joseph just happens to arrive into Shechem and just happens to find a man who just happened to overhear that the brothers were going to Dothan, not Shechem. Joseph just happens to find the brothers in Dothan. And the brothers just happen to decide now is the time to murder their brother. And they just happen to decide actually not to murder their brother, but Reuben just happens to be away on a shopping trip when there just happens to be some slave traders who just happen to be going to Egypt who happen to go by, and they sell them for 20 pieces of silver. And if just one of those links in the chain doesn't happen exactly that way, everyone dies in the story. Because God's plan is to get Joseph into Egypt, to make him prime minister so that he can provide grain in the famine to keep the world alive. God is totally in control of every single detail of this bizarre, painful, agonizing story. The unstoppable plans of God. So, what does this mean for us? It means that God always keeps his word. Joseph sat naked at the bottom of a pit, his dreams in tatters, he must have wondered how much is a promise from God worth at that point in time. Very little to Joseph then. But as we see the story of Joseph unfold and realize that God has kept his word to Joseph, the dreams come to pass, we realize that God has kept his word to Joseph. The brothers bow down and worship. He is exalted. God didn't give Joseph a script beforehand for how he would keep his word. He didn't say to Joseph, it's going to include um, betrayal and uh, attempted murder and slave trading and imprisonment in Egypt. And oh, by the way, it's going to take 13 years before you're exalted to prime minister. He didn't get any of that beforehand. Just a promise. And God's word comes to us as a sure foundation for our lives, but we don't get all the details of how God will work out his promises. We don't get all the headlines of the tears and confusion along the way, but we do know from the story of Joseph that he will keep his word to his people. We also see that God cannot be thwarted. The brothers say, come, 
let us kill the dreamer, thinking that they can kill the dream. But their very attempt to kill the dream is part of what makes the dream come about. It was sinful. Their actions were utterly wrong. And yet God was able to use sin to achieve blessing. God is never the source or cause of evil. It's very important to see that. Uh, nor um, uh, are we, um, we're, we're always culpable for our actions. This sin matters. But God is sovereignly at work through all the ups and downs of a sinful world to bring about his plans for his people. At the end of the story of Joseph, Genesis 20, sorry, 50 verse 20, Joseph is able to look back at the whole story and reflect this way. He says to the brothers, you intended, it to, you, you intended to harm me, but God intend, intended it for good to accomplish what is now being done, the saving of many lives. Well, if you have a Bible to hand, most wonderfully we see this pattern at work in the Lord Jesus. Turn forward to Acts uh, chapter 2, which is on page 1093 of the Pew Bibles. It's worth just seeing this uh, for ourselves, I think how God is able to use human sin to achieve his good purposes for the world. Acts 2, verse 23. This is Peter speaking to the crowds at Pentecost about Jesus. This man was handed over to you by God's set purpose and foreknowledge, and you, with the help of wicked men, put him to death by nailing him to the cross. But God raised him from the dead, freeing him from the agony of death. God cannot be thwarted. At the cross, wicked men put Christ to death, a terrible act of sin, and yet God was using that very sin to achieve wonderful salvation for the world. It's a great encouragement for us. Our own personal sin and the sin of others can never mess up God's plan and promises for our lives. There is mystery here. I don't know how God is able to use our genuine free choices and yet sovereignly to be at work in the world to always bring about his plans and yet he does and finally as we finish God's methods can often be baffling I was wondering this week you know, here's this family started Genesis 37 they aren't dysfunctional they, are, they have got a problem clearly but um, why doesn't God just send an angel um, as he does elsewhere, to speak directly to the family. And you can imagine the angel getting the, the brothers around and the dad saying, look, let's have a sit down, let's have a, a proper chat, let's get it all out in the open, let's clarify the problems and let's move on, let's be restored and healed and let's make a nation together. Would have been much simpler, wouldn't it, for Joseph and the family, much quicker. Why did it have to involve 13 years of agony for Joseph in a pit as a slave in prison in Egypt? We know the ending, I know that, but let's not rush too quickly to the ending. We're meant to be forced to linger over the agonizing details of a terrible story. And it is baffling for Joseph. He must have been baffled by God again and again in the story. And I think the same thing happens in our lives. We know God's plan but we can be baffled by what he's doing in our lives to achieve the plan. That young man, Neil, who I mentioned, who lost his arm, 
uh, he was writing years later, and uh, he reflected back over his life, and he became a successful athlete, and he competed in um, some uh, para-athletic uh, global championships. He won several key medals, and he realized years later that he was far more successful as an athlete with one arm than he ever would have been with two arms. And because of his success, he became well-known. And because he was well-known, he's able to speak the gospel of Jesus Christ to a wider audience than he ever would have been able to. And so years later, he looked back and reflected how God was using his own personal suffering to achieve gospel blessings to many people. If he asked Neil through the story, if he understood what God was doing, he probably would have said no and no and no again and again. But at some point, he looked back and realized that there was some good plan through it. So at times, even though the, 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 the plan is baffling, we can at times see glimpses of what God is doing. But as I say that, I know there'll be people here today who are going through such agony and you've tried to see how some good might come from it, but you just cannot see humanly how God could ever bring about any good from what has happened. And the story of Joseph would warn us away from any glib or trite attempt to see a good plan in a hard situation. Sometimes we cannot see a good plan. But I think the story of Joseph helps us because it would say to those who are in that kind of story, in the middle of it with no good ending, it would say to us, the God of Joseph is your God. He was faithful then He is faithful now, and he will keep his word and promises to you, even if you cannot see how that's possible. And I take it that at some point in the future, and it might be only in the new creation, each one of us will be able to look back on the the confused and baffling life we've had and see that God has been lovingly working through all the tears and the pain for blessing. The world tells us that any dream will do, but the story of Joseph shows us that actually only one plan matters, God's plan for the world. The world tells us that we are what we feel, but the story of Joseph tells us that our feelings are a terrible gauge for what's happening in the world. The world says it is down to us to make our dreams come true. The story of Joseph tells us that it is down to a sovereign Lord who holds our lives in his hands. The world tells us to trust ourselves, Joseph shows us why we should trust the Lord. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for the the realistic and gritty nature of this story this morning, hardly a children's story at all, full of um, terrible sin and agony and tears. But we thank you that that story helps us to understand what you're doing in the world. And I pray that you would help us to be a people of faith, not a shallow faith that uh, holds fast in the good times, but a deep and profound faith that clings on to you through all the storms, even when we're confused. We pray this uh, for your glory and in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, we've looked at some big things this morning, and um, as we just try to process what we've heard in response, um, the band are going to a play, sing a song for us that um, picks up so many of the themes we've been thinking about in Genesis 37. So just stay seated.
and listen to what they are singing for us. Process what you've heard. Perhaps you want to pray. Perhaps you want to recommit yourself to trusting the Lord. Um, But use it as you will. Thank you.